I'm Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. I'm Lieutenant Joe Pangaro, and for our little get-together today, I'm trying to figure out what it is I want to start our program with. So I think one of the best ways is to start a little lighthearted, a little upbeat. So what I'm going to talk about is an exciting movie. Now, there's lots of movies out there, and for the most part in the pandemic, we were kept away from the movies. We didn't go. We did a lot of Netflix, and we did a lot of Hulu, and we did a lot of Prime Video. But we did not do a lot of going to the theaters because we were shut out and shut down. For me personally, I love movies. I love going to a movie. I love the rumble of the movie. I love the uh, gigantic picture. I love the detail. I just love it. You know, movies take you away. They give you some escape from everyday life. And I like all kinds of movies. Uh, You know, some of our favorite movies here that we watch over and over and over again is the movie RV. If you've ever seen RV, it's a really very funny movie um, about a family that takes an RV trip. Really a good time. Another one that we really like is Wild Hogs. Me and Miss Kathy the other night, we were enjoying an adult beverage out on the veranda, so to speak, and it was kind of early. I said, well, well, what are you going to do? You know, do you want to go out? Do you want to go dancing? Do you want to do something else? He says, no, why don't we order in some dinner and watch a nice movie? So we watched Wild Hogs again, which is a very, very funny, wholesome movie to watch. RV, like I said, is also great. So we watched Back to the Future. Uh, What are some of the other ones we really like? We watched Back to the Future. Um, on Golden Pond, which was really great. So we, we reached back and we, we watched some classics. I like some of the old black and white movies from the 40s and 50s as well myself. They're all pretty good. But there's a movie I want to talk to you about, and I probably mentioned it before, but I'm going to mention it again. So my daughter, Marisa Joy, was a... Uh, in high school, she was an actress. And she tried out for a couple of different parts here and there, and she got a part in a movie called... Uh, called to duty. Now, I'm, I'm sure I told you about this, but I'm going to tell you again. Uh, it's really fun. You can you can watch it. It's about a group of uh, female fighter pilots, and they're a show team, you know, like the Blue Angel kind of thing, and they get pressed into service for active duty combat. And it's really uh, cool to watch these young ladies. I was behind the scenes. I saw them shooting the footage, flying the jets, all that kind of stuff. Really great. But I think you'll enjoy it. It's a it's a fun movie. It's, uh, it's got some, some uh, pro-America in it. And it's, you know, if you like jets flying around fast, you, you really like it. Called to Duty. Uh, I got it on Prime Video, but I know you can get it on Vudu. I know you can get it on... Sometimes you can get it locally when you do... Um, what do you call it? When you do uh, on-demand on your cable company. But it's also, I think, on Apple Video, iTunes Video. So since we're in talking about movies, let's take a look at that. Called to Duty with Marisa Joy, uh, and that's her stage name. So while I'm talking about that, you know that I do a lot of writing, right? You know, I've written books on police, police work and police training and all that kind of stuff. I've had some interest in the story from my most recent book uh, that just came out called The Investigation. The Investigation is a different way to teach police techniques. 
my first book, The Interview, was really a, a straightforward, here's how to conduct a criminal interview. Here's the psychological components you need to have. You need to understand about yourself, the person you're going to interview, all those kind of things. Uh, and, and it was. It was kind of straightforward. Do A, B, C, and D. Here's the techniques I recommend. Here's a couple of stories that go with the techniques so you know how to use them. Uh, and it's done pretty well. And then they wanted me to do a second book. And I said, I, I do something different. You know, everything in life, if you're a creative person, you have to be a differentiator. You know, you can't write a movie about a, a kid who accidentally goes back to 1955. That's already been done. So you'd have to think of another way to do a, a time travel kind of a movie. So in my book, The Investigation, from Blue360Media.com, um, I took the story of a brutal double homicide. And I used that as the backdrop for the police training. And it, it came out really well. But I've had some interest from a couple of production companies that have said, hey, we read the story, we like the story, we, we, we might like to turn it into a screenplay, which I said, well, guess what? I'm already doing that. So I have the book in front of me here. And it's got, you know, it's got all the stuff you need to know about conducting an investigation. It's a very uh, serious book, but it does use the story to move the learning along so that you're, you're more caught up in what's going on. All right, so I'm going to go here. And one of the things, the reason I'm connecting this together, um, I'm going to connect this together for you here, is that recently we saw in Long Island, there was a serial killer captured. And... When I talk about these kind of people, these are these are not you know somebody who steals a car, somebody who's shoplifting, even somebody an idiot in a bar fight. People like like serial killers have a different drive system, and I recognized this early on in my career, as that when I was investigating different kinds of crimes, and I investigated some very serious crimes, including the story in my book, the double homicide in my book, that I use as the backdrop. Uh, but I, I've, I've investigated serial rapists, uh, serial burglars, all these people that do things over and over and over again, and you start to learn their patterns, because we all have patterns, right? So all the time I talk about patterns. I say, we all have patterns in life. When you get up in the morning, you probably have some kind of pattern that you follow. You know, do you go to the bathroom first? Do you make the coffee? Do you let out the dog? You know, do you sit in the backyard for 10 minutes? What is it that you do? We all have these patterns and we follow them over and over. So when we look at, um, like in police work, we try and teach our officers to do random patrols of their neighborhoods, of their business sections. The reason being is that we, we, we're so pattern-based that we can slip into doing the exact same kind of patrol every single day. On day shift, I go from here to there to there to there. On midnights, I go from here, to, you know what I mean? And when you set up a pattern, people can identify it and recognize it. Now, when you're at home in bed sleeping, you don't care one bit about the pattern of patrol of the police officer that's riding past your house. But if you were a criminal, you might want to know how the officers patrol so you could plot out your crimes, right? Wouldn't that be a good idea? So what I identified in here, uh, in this book, and I'm looking at page 10 of the investigation, and it, there's some definitions. I give a lot of definitions because you have to, have to understand things. And I talk about pattern-based behavior. Now, I normally don't like when a host reads from a book, but this is very interesting. So I'm going to read something here. There are need-based crimes and drive-based crimes, right? Or you can call them want-based crimes. You want something uh, or a drive. Uh, 
No matter the type of criminal or crime we're investigating, most crimes can be defined as either based on a drive or a want. Defining the crime can help us as we approach to investigate the crime and understand what techniques to use. Now, doesn't it make sense? If I am dealing with a, uh, a petty thief and they, they commit constant thief, they go up on your porch and they steal the hot pie off your porch, right? Remember that from when you were a kid? The old lady puts the pie on the window and somebody steals the pie, right? If that's what I'm dealing with, then I need to understand as much as I can about that person. What's their pattern? Because it'll help me to try and catch them, right? So when, when I was out there active duty, uh, my partner, Chuck, this guy was a brilliant guy. And we would have these groups of serial burglaries, people that would come and break into people's houses uh, and they would hit multiple houses in the course of a couple of weeks and they hit a couple towns, you know, they move around. And I remember we were sitting around trying to figure out, okay, let's take out all the cases. Let's look at all of the different locations that were burglarized, the time of day, what was taken, how was it taken? You know, a lot of burglars will go to your house and they'll take a pillowcase off your bed and fill it with the stuff they steal of yours so they can carry it and away they go. Some uh, burglars climb through windows. Some burglars like to, you know, push in or kick in your door. Other uh, burglars like go through a basement window. There's a whole host of different ways that burglars behave. But the reality is like any other kind of criminal that's a serial based kind of criminal, they do the same things over and over once they find a pattern that works for them. So that's really understanding why we're, you know, as a pattern-based person. Same thing for you. If you knew, say, okay, here's, put it in your, your perspective. Say there's a person that you don't get along with. And every time you see this person uh, at the local uh, food store, they confront you and they give you a hard time and they create uh, uncomfortable feelings and maybe they're a little threatening. And you start to realize that every time you go to that food store at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, that person is there. So then you try going at one o'clock on a Wednesday and they're not there. Then you try four o'clock on a Friday and they're not there. Then you test, you go back on, on Thursday at two o'clock and there they are and they give you a hard time. You have now understood this person's pattern and what the confrontation may be so you avoid the pattern. Well, police work is the exact opposite. We wanna know the pattern so that we can go out and see maybe the crime in progress and take some action. So if you reported this person harassing you and I would ask you, well, when does this happen? You say, you know, I've noticed that every Thursday, if I go there at two o'clock, this person is there and gives me a hard time. Then I'd say, ah, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go out there at Thursday at two o'clock and I'm gonna conduct a surveillance on the parking lot. So if you're willing, why don't you show up like you're going to shop and see what happens. If this person's there, if they cause a problem, I'll be able to see it. And then they go out there and of course you get out of the car and the person sees you, approaches you, starts a hard time, gives you a hard time. And now the officer can step out and say, hey, what are you doing? You're harassing that person, make an arrest, whatever they, whatever they can do. So that's the purpose of understanding patterns in people's behavior. So once we understand the concept of patterns, now we can look at everything else in the world and I'm going to get to the book. I'm going to get back to the book in a minute. But right now, when we look at people's patterns, say a drug addict, a drug addict, someone who uses drugs every single day. We used to say that, you know, heroin was a morning drug early in the morning because people would uh, use the drug all day. And then they pass out when they wake up in the morning. They need, you know, the fix. We used to hear that. They need a fix. They need to fix their feeling sick because they get sick to their stomach without the drug or whatever. So they'd be out early in the morning prowling around looking for heroin because they wake up and they need the drug. 
So our narcotics task force, we used to go out at 5.30 in the morning and start surveilling areas that we knew where there was open air drug dealing, where people would show up to buy drugs. And there's usually not a lot of people around at that time in the morning other than drug dealers and people, you know, people going to work, but people that would frequent these areas and stop and talk to somebody we knew was a drug dealer. And we would sit and we would watch and lo and behold, here comes all these people between 6 and 6.30 and we would stop people, get the drugs and make the arrest because we knew their patterns, right? Let's look at the cocaine in the White House. So the first thing that I got to tell you, I'm frustrated that they couldn't solve this kind of thing. When at first they tell you it's in one part of the White House, then it's in another part of the White House, then they don't know. Then now there's, there's camera spots in the White House, they tell us now that you can't see anything. Or maybe the camera wasn't working. This is dangerous. This is our White House. You might not like Joe Biden. You might disagree with his policies. He is the president of the United States. And we have to protect him every single day to make sure the enemies of America cannot hurt him. He is the president of the United States. He should be cared for and constantly secured. So if there are spots in the White House where the cameras don't cover it, we better fix those spots or we better find out that they're lying because they didn't want to actually tell us who had the cocaine. Now, there's an old saying, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it is probably a duck. So I've said this on, on previous episodes. Is it possible that someone else there had cocaine? Of course it is. It is a, it is a drug that's used by lots of people um, recreationally. Now, we initially were told... Uh, that they found the coke in a locker. Then I, I heard it on the radio, and I heard it reported that it was just under an ounce of cocaine, not much. Well, let me tell you something. An ounce of cocaine is a lot of cocaine, okay? Now it turns out they're saying it's just less than a gram. So a gram, if you think, look, if a gram of cocaine, if you don't know what cocaine is, if you took a, uh, like a lunch baggie, right, and you poured sugar in there, and you had it about... I don't know. You pour it in so it's into the corner, right? It's into the corner of the bag and about a half inch up and down. Now you twist the bag and you pull that off. That's about a gram of cocaine. So that it's really not a lot. That that speaks to me of recreational use. If it was an ounce, I would say, wow, that's that's something they really have to investigate. But the fact that they're they're telling us that they couldn't determine whose this was, I have to call out as BS. Um, because it's in the White House. Uh, you know, that there's all kinds of surveillance there. So this nonsense about there's areas you can't see and this and that, that's nonsense. That whole place can be seen. So I would say uh, we have to go to whose pattern would that be? And that's why, of course, everybody's immediately jumping to, well, it has to be, uh, what's his name? Hunter. Because Hunter has a history. It's not because we know for sure it's him, but we're looking at the facts. We're discerning the facts. Who would have cocaine in the White House? Well, it, there's, we don't think there's any drug dealers walking around through the White House just throwing bags of cocaine like the cocaine fairy, right? It would have to be somebody who is using it recreationally or somebody who is using it um, addictively. Uh, and sometimes it's both. So we got a story from the White House, Corinne Jean-Pierre. Right? She told us the Bidens were not here Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, and it was found on Friday. Well, there's two nonsenses there. First of all, just because it was found on Friday doesn't mean it was left there when they weren't there. It could have been left there the night before, the day before, whatever. The next thing we find out is uh, the position, the location of it changes. See, so that's, that. you notice this is also a pattern. 
You notice that this White House has a pattern where they tell you one story. When facts come up to debunk that, they change the story. That's their pattern. So you can't believe anything that comes out of there the first time. You have to give it some time, right, to let the facts settle and see how much of in a corner they're going to be put before they tell the true story. So in this case, um, the, the Bidens were not there. They were all gone. And then we find out now, based on the logs and the records, the president's movements are monitored so they know where he is at all times. Uh, the president and his son Hunter were in the White House until, I think, 6.48 p.m. on Friday. So they were there all day Friday, which is, again, we look at patterns, 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 and that helps us to understand people's behavior. So when we're going to talk in a little bit about uh, body language. So when you're watching things on TV, I'm going to give you some clues of what to look for when you're watching people speak and you're watching people um, make statements or come out and say things, there's some body language things and some wordage that you can look at that you need to say, oh, wait a minute, that looks uh, looks bad to me. So let me get back here. Need, want crimes, and drive crimes. All right, so a need crime is something we can all identify with. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, security, love, and connection to others. Those are the basic drives that people have, right? We have drives to do that. Uh, these are the base needs built into us as a species so we can survive and function. Maslow's hierarchy of need identifies those things uh, as a starting point and a motivation for all human activity. Right, so think about that. In the 19, 1910s and the 1920s, we didn't have TV. We didn't have internet. We didn't have all these other things. What were most people, not the Rockefellers and the Got Rocks and all those people, what was what were most people in America in the 1910s and 20s worried about? They were worried about putting food on the table, making sure they had a house to live in, and that they weren't uh, victimized by crime. So if you take any one of those legs out of that out of that stool, if I don't have enough food then I'm going to concentrate on getting food. I'm not going to concentrate on making music, writing plays, painting, sculpture, all the higher uh, kind of thinking uh, that human beings are capable. We can't do that if we don't have food. If we don't have shelter, you're not going to be doing those things. And if you don't have security, if you're worried about people coming through the door every minute, it's going to be very hard for you to do those higher end things. So when we look at this, those kind of drives are one thing. Um, then there's the other kind of drives. Now, this is just this is just a sprinkling from the book. I'm not going to sit and read the whole thing to you, but when you see the difference here, those are wants. So if I want electronics, if I want um, a PlayStation, if I want uh, some jewelry for my wife, if I want a nicer car, and I don't have the ability, I don't have the resources to get those things, depending on my personality, I may decide that I will steal those things that I want. I want them. Uh, and some people can come fall prey to that. I, I need the drugs. So therefore, I'll do a burglary to get money so I can go buy the drug. Needs and wants, right? They kind of go together. Um, but what happens when we realize that the potential consequences to us for satisfying a want uh, are, are very high, we often back off. Yeah, I want nice jewelry, but when I realize if I break into my neighbor's house, they have cameras, they might see me, then I go to jail. So while I want it, I can control it. So when in a, in a want type of a situation, normally we can we can feel compelled to satisfy our want. But in reality, if the consequences are high, the risk to reward is 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 too much in the negative for us. We will forego 
the want. We say, okay, forget it. I'm not going to do it. Uh, no matter what, I, I don't want to get in that kind of trouble. On the other hand, a drive crime or these other drives we have, if you were starving and your children were starving, you would probably go out and steal, no matter the consequences, because you, you would need to eat. You, if you're going to die if you don't eat. So you would do things. It would drive you really hard. It would be constantly on your mind, something you couldn't stop thinking about. Well, another drive that we all have is the sex drive. Right? The sex drive is built into us for a specific reason. It's built in so that we continue the species. Right? We, are, we, are, we have these hormones in our body that make us attracted to other people, uh, that make us feel, uh, feel like engaging in sexual activity. Our very bodies are built to attract the opposite sex so that we will get together and mate. Now, that's the basic uh, one, two, three of the whole thing. And it's not, not so you can have fun. It is so that you can continue the species. That's built into all, all animals, everything. That's sex drive. Well, the problem we have with crimes is that some people have this, this drive. And sex is, as a drive can be perverted and can be twisted in many individuals where they don't just try to satisfy that drive or realize that, yeah, I, I really, really want to go and have a sexual relationship with my neighbor because I find her very attractive. But it's not destroying me. The drive is there. The need to mate, to procreate is there. And I do find her attractive. But if I do that, then I'm going to have a big problem with my wife. I'm going to have a problem with her husband. I might get in trouble. So I can, I can cl close that out. When the drive is twisted, like it is with serial killers, psychosexual killers, these are people that derive pleasure, sexual pleasure and otherwise, out of a victim's pain out of a victim's suffering. Now, you might sit there and say, how can that possibly be? Because you could never imagine that. You know, uh, but the reality is, it's true. Some people, uh, you look at all the things that are out there. Okay, look at all the things that are out there. When I, when I teach police officers about criminal investigation when it comes to sexual assault, one of the things we talk about are these different drives and, and different proclivities that people will have. Now, this is not a sex talk, everyone, so if there's any kids in the room, they can get out. But what I'm saying is that there are, we, we all like something different. We all find different things attractive, don't we? We do. So some people might say, uh, you know, oh, I like a big muscular, muscular man. I think that's very, very attractive to a woman. You might look at a woman and say, oh, I like a woman with some curves. You know, I like her to, you know, to have a couple of pounds on her. You might like a really skinny woman, whatever. We all have these different likes. But then there's individual things within that paradigm. Um, what was, it was a football coach, famous football coach going back, had to be 15, 20 years and this guy, his proclivity was that he found women's feet very attractive. And he, he used to, and I, and part, get, keep the kids out, he used to like to suck on his wife's toes, right? That's what he did. Um, and that came out in the news media. Everybody laughed and joked about it. But I'm going to tell you, there are lots and lots and lots of people that have that same fetish, right? Fetishism is part of the drive, things that make you crazy. So in the course of my career, I investigated... One of my first big investigations ever was a man who sexually assaulted 70 and 80 year old women. Uh, now, you can you say to yourself, well, I, I really don't understand it. Either do I. But, you know, you find out there is a huge population of people, uh, just like there are pedophiles that are attracted to young people. 
there are also lots of reasons why people want to sexually assault, not have sex with, sexually assault older people. And it's funny because we have to understand that sexual assault, though a lot of us think it's about sex, it's not. It's about power over the victim, right? And this is where you start to blend the psychosexual killers, these, these serial killers, like the guy in Gilgo Beach. You start to understand that it's not about having sex with the prostitute because the man just felt like he needed to have sex, but then he murdered the woman, right? He killed her. How much more control can you have over a person than to violate their body physically against their will and then to take their life? Do you see? That, this is, this is a, a drive that doesn't affect me. I don't sit there and think about doing that, but I've investigated people who do. And it is really a, uh, a sick, sick group of people. But that's the difference between a drive. A drive pushes you, and when the drive is twisted, um, it, can really, it can really cause havoc and, and, and pain. So a drive crime is one you can't really control. And when we look at um, this killer in Gilgo Beach, and we look at um, any of these other famous serial killers, almost all of them had a psychosexual component to them. They, they took their victims, they terrorized their victims, they sexually assault their victims. And another thing that's true with many serial uh, psychosexual killers is that they will often take a souvenir from the victim. Now, if you've been listening uh, on the mainstream media knows when they're talking about the Gilgo killer, they're saying that they're now searching the house looking for trophies. And that's what we call it in the business. They're taking trophies from their victims. And the reason they do that is that that drive is so overwhelming and powerful to uh, assault someone, to hurt them, terrorize them, and then take their life while engaging in sex with the person, to totally control them, is that they will take a personal thing from the victim and they will keep it. Sometimes they take underwear. Sometimes they take a driver's license. Sometimes they take some hair, a piece of jewelry, a necklace, uh, a shoe. They take something personal from the victim. And after they dump the body, then they, they go back to that item once in a while and they will relive the crime in their mind. They will relive the excitement of grabbing someone and, and controlling them. Then they will relive the excitement of the whatever whatever they did to the people, whether they, they tortured them or whatever, or they made them in terror and they will look at that item and touch that item and it reminds them directly of that crime. Uh, and that satiates some of the need. Uh, at some point though, uh, doing that is not enough and that drive forces them to go out and get another victim. And this is where we have the serial component to this. So while a serial burglar is not um, hurting people, they are acting in the same way. They have a pattern. Well, our serial killers have patterns also. And these sometimes are the things that help us to catch them, to identify them. Uh, the advent of DNA now is very, very important because it's very hard, no matter what you do, to not leave DNA uh, everywhere you go. There's a saying in criminal investigation, when you go into a scene and when you come out, you leave things when you go in and you take things when you come out. That's why cops wear booties and all kinds of things when they go in and out of these places. So that's really, I wanted to talk about that because this is, this is in the news now. And we're going to hear more about serial killers because this, this case, this is going to be a, a bigger case as it goes. Because there's many more victims that have not been tied to the killer yet. And we'll see how that goes in the future. But here, Lieutenant Joe, I just wanted to make you aware of these things so that you have a little better understanding. When we come back, we'll talk about um, how we can identify 
someone who's being truthful or deceptive. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus-hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Well, the OUTLOUD truth was the rallying call that started it all. A wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health, and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, everybody. Now, I hope I didn't scare anybody with that last uh, that last segment, that last go round with our serial serial killer talk. Uh, but the reality is, you know, they're they're out there. Um, and Mrs. Lieutenant Joe is calling down, saying to the studio, saying, "Hey, listen, don't scare everybody to death." Well, it's not really to scare you; it's to help you understand. You know, if we all understand more about what goes on around us, we can be safer. So, if I was to say, if you heard about a thing like that, like they knew in that area of Long Island, that there was a serial killer. Well, then we want to identify the patterns of who the victims are, don't we? Is he finding them in a specific place? Um, these are apparently uh, what they're telling us, that these were prostitutes. Uh, and often in serial killings, they will uh, seek out prostitutes because, first of all, you make a phone call, they'll show up where you want them. Your victim will come right to you. Uh, number two, in society, a, a prostitute goes missing, you figure, ah, she left, she, she up and left town. You don't consider them to have the most stable of lives. At least that's what we think, right? Uh, and so that's why, that's why they look at, uh, you'll see many times, uh, the Green River Killer, he was, he was going after prostitutes. Uh, it, lots and lots of these people do because they're easy targets, because they're available. You dial a phone number and they'll show up somewhere. You pull up next to them, they'll get in the car with you, uh, and away you go. So that's why I want to talk about that. Now, we're going to get back to that and some other stuff I want to talk about. But I do want to tell you, to keep yourself healthy, that's right. I'm going to tell you about Healthy Cell because I use it. I like it. It's very good. Uh, I tried to get my cousin Stephen on here again, and I'm going to have to make a point to do it uh, ASAP. Uh, he wants to tell you how well the, uh, the sleep, the REM sleep product has worked for him. I've told you about it. 
But this is a young man who really had a hard time sleeping. And I, I gave him this stuff. He tried it. He bought it on his own. And then I bought him some for his birthday because I knew it really helped him. And I, he, he wants to tell you about it because uh, he's, he's a real person and it really works. I like the, uh, the immune boost because that really has helped me. And then there's the, the focus factor. So if you're interested in any of those things, it's Healthy Cell products. They're on the network here. Go take a look. And I can tell you they work for me and they work for people I know. So we'll do that. Now, in my own life, um, not, not that I want to stay on the serial killer thing, but it's in the news now uh, and people find it interesting. I know as an investigator, I found it really, really uh, interesting. So when I, just, just before I came on to the job in my town in 19, I came on in 1986, just before, the year before, in 1985, there was a serial killer working the Jersey Shore and a, a prolific serial killer. Uh, and he was captured by the detectives in the department I worked for. Uh, right, before I, right before I joined the department, uh, they got him, I think, in the fall of 1985, if I have my date right. And I started in January of 86. Um, and this guy was known as the Thrill Killer, uh, Richard Bagenwald. Uh, he is now currently, uh, as Uncle Rush Limbo would say, room temperature. Uh, he has died in prison. But he was a prolific serial killer from New Jersey. And uh, he actually killed a young girl that I knew. I knew this girl. She was the sister of a kid I went to high school with. And very, very tragic. And you, you, would, think, you would not think in the beautiful, idyllic little towns of the Jersey Shore that somebody uh, would be would become the victim of a serial killer, but they did, this poor young lady and, and other young people uh, up and down the, the Jersey Shore and Ocean and Monmouth County area. So Richard Bagenwall uh, had killed a prosecutor in, in the city of Bayonne, New Jersey in 1958, and he went to prison for a while. Uh, he did his time, you know, and he got out. And it was manslaughter. I think he, he wasn't direct murder. They, they're charging with manslaughter. He did his time. And he gets out. Eventually, he makes his way down to the Jersey Shore, and he was living in the city of Asbury Park. Well, we started to have um, missing young people. Now, these were not prostitutes. I currently, there's a serial killer probably working in Atlantic City. Uh, there was four bodies laid next to the railroad tracks. They were all prostitutes, so that sounds pretty close to the pattern, right? We talked about patterns. But here, the one I'm talking about, the Bagan Wall, the thrill killer, what this guy did is he picked up uh, hitchhikers and he found people in different places. And the young girl that I knew, and I will show respect to her by not mentioning her name, she was going to a Halloween party. Um, I, I guess Halloween night. She was going to Halloween. And she was going from one town, probably about four or five miles away to another town. And she was walking. Now, why she was walking, I don't know. But she was walking and it was dark. You know, it gets dark in, uh, in late October earlier, and she's walking, and apparently this Bagan Wall guy was cruising up and down the area looking for young people to pick up. And he saw this young girl, and he apparently asked her if she wanted a ride. And she said she did, sure, because he said he lived in Point Pleasant Beach, which is only a couple of miles away, and that's where she was going. So she gets in the car with him, willingly. She got in the car. And what he did, we found that in the course of the investigation, is that he had a lighter, you know, like one of them cigarette lighters, that he converted into a 22 caliber gun. You would flick the button, and instead of a flame, it would shoot a, a bullet, a small 22 caliber bullet out of the thing. 
And apparently what we're finding out in the investigation was that as soon as she got in the car and got settled, he asked her if she wanted a cigarette. She said no. He took out the lighter and boom, he shot her right in the head and killed her. The poor little thing. Right in the front seat of the car, he killed her. Then he took her to his apartment in Point Pleasant Beach where, based on the investigation, he violated this young girl for several days while she was dead. This is now a different kind of serial killer. I told you they have fetishes. This guy was necrophiliac. He liked to have sex with the dead, okay? So I hope there's no kids listening today because this is weird stuff, but it's real. Um, and she went missing. Then other people went missing. In my town, how our police got involved in it is um, somebody was walking a dog uh, right off the highway and they found a body of a young woman uh, just off the highway in the woods. And the police went out there and they identified her as a young girl who had been missing for a few weeks. Uh, and she was also murdered and left there, uh, dumped. Well, over the course of time, they found other victims in the area. One thing led to another uh, in the investigation. I'm going to write the story about it. Uh, it's going to be called Thrill Killer, Death at the Jersey Shore. So I don't want to give away all the details. But uh, enough to say that they found, they ended up with a suspect, this guy, Baganwald. And the guys from my department uh, ended up uh, serving a search warrant at his house. And when they got to the house and they took him into custody, one of the cops was going to smoke a cigarette. And he picked up the lighter that was the gun, not knowing, and he almost um, fired it into his head. Uh, he, he Eventually, they interviewed him. He gave up a lot of information. He went to prison for the rest of his life. Um, but he died in prison. So these people are out there. These people are out there. So how do you know if somebody's being truthful or deceitful? That's what I'm going to talk about. So I do interviewing. Um, one of the things I do, I'm an expert at interview, criminal interview particularly, but any kind of interview uh, I can do. I've learned the techniques. I've learned from other people. And I have lots of experience in conducting these interviews. So my book, The Interview, imagine that, um, from blue360media.com. So in the interview, which describes the psychological underpinnings of, of an interview. Now, an interview is different than an interrogation. We often hear those two words conflated, right? People say it all the time. You'll hear it, take them down to interrogation one, right? Well, interrogation is completely different than an interview. An interrogation is a very uh, forceful, uh, one-sided conversation. Uh, the officer or the agent, whoever's talking to you, will normally uh, have gone through the interview phase first and you did not give up the information they were looking for. Maybe you continued to be deceptive, you lied, you, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't tell the truth. Now they'll move to interrogation. So they might leave the room for a little while, get a cup of coffee, let your tension build up in you. And then they come back into the room, usually carrying a case file or some other piece of legitimate evidence. They put it on the table and they'll say now, something like this. Uh, now, listen, Bob, I appreciate you talking to us for the last three hours, but you're not being truthful. Now, uh, Bob might at that point go, what are you talking? No, stop. You say, stop. Listen, you're not being truthful. We know it. You see this case file? Everything in this case file tells me that you're responsible for that gas station robbery. We have witnesses. Uh, there's video. We're going to go look at the video, and eventually I'm pretty sure we're going to see you, even if you wear a mask or something. So, Bob, you're not being truthful, and I think you need... I, I didn't do it. You guys keep trying to pin it on me. I didn't... Stop, Bob. Stop. And you go back to your evidence. So, an interrogation is completely different than an interview. 
and an interview uh, is really a back and forth between people. It's, an, it, it's You ask questions, you answer questions. You give information, you get information. It's an exchange of information. Whereas a, uh, an interrogation is a one-sided conversation uh, that's meant to make the person being interrogated realize there's no room for them to hide anymore. Uh, their lies aren't going to work. Everything that they're trying to do is not going to work. That their best interest would be to tell the truth. Now, you don't need to use force. You know, there's no need for physical force or intimidation at this point. Um, because at this point, you have evidence and you have the strength of will, right? You, you, you know that they, they probably did it. It would be nice to have that confession, though. It's nothing better than a good video confession of someone giving it up and the cop being uh, compassionate and nice and all these kind of things. So that's an interrogation. And we use that word incorrectly. Police use that word incorrectly. Uh, yeah, Lieutenant, we interrogated the guy for three hours and he gave it up. I say, listen, if you interrogated somebody from three, for three hours, you were doing it wrong. And when you get to court, if you say that, you write that in your report, a good attorney is going to tear you apart because we don't, inter in we don't interrogate somebody for three hours. Right? We interview maybe for three, six, eight, 10, 12 hours, but you certainly don't interrogate for 12 hours, for the most part, for the most part. So all my brother and sisters that are jumping up and down, I did interrogation for three, okay, uh, they're once in a while. They're usually much shorter than that. The interview, on the other hand, the interview process is, like I said, it is a, it's a connection. So in my book, The Interview, what I try and do is break these things down so that we understand the, what's going on in everybody's head. Right? What's going on in everybody's head, the interviewer and the person being interviewed. Now, you can use these skills anytime you're doing anything. If you're going for a job interview, if you are uh, looking to get a transfer, if you are looking to negotiate your salary, it's good to understand what's going on with everybody in the room. And you can often do that because the reality is that 80% of human interaction is through body language, body language, uh, how we react to questions, how, we, how our, our body moves, how our eyes move, our breathing, uh, our heartbeat, uh, all these kind of things can change depending on the kind of um, stress we're under, right? So that's the idea. So in a criminal interview, like if I had uh, the guy from Gilgo, if I was interviewing him, if his attorney would allow that interview, uh, I would sit down with him. There's a couple things I need to understand. Number one, for me to be able to read somebody's body language, to be, able to, to be able to tell when they were being deceptive or truthful, I'd have to understand what they're like when they're being absolutely truthful, right? So one of the things that we look at here is the reality of an interview, especially a criminal interview, is there are really only two things you look for. One, you look for truth, and number two, you look for deception. Not lies, you look for deception. There's lots of reasons people can be deceptive. That doesn't mean they're guilty of something. They're just being deceptive. Uh, and the other end of that is the truth. So when we interview somebody, say you bring them in for a job interview and you're looking over their background and you're trying to determine, should I hire this person? Are they a good fit for my company? Uh, and you want to go over some of the things in their application. You want to see if they're being honest with their answers. You want to be able to tell if they're being truthful, what they told you about previous projects they worked on or teams they worked on or accomplishments they had or any of those kind of things. And that's exactly the same in a criminal interview. You want to gauge the answers the person has. So we look for truth. So it would be nice. You're interviewing somebody for a job and all their indicators, all their body, uh, body language indicators and their answers and everything about them tells you 
that they're being truthful and you feel very confident about that and you hire them, they turn out to be a great employee. Same thing with a criminal investigator. If I'm sitting there with a potential suspect or a person of interest and I'm interviewing them and they are, are passing with flying colors, their body language is good, their answers are good, their eye contact is all that stuff is good, then I'm very confident saying, okay, this person may have seen something, they might be a witness, but they're certainly not the accused and you can be confident to let them go. On the other hand, if someone is being deceptive, now we have to understand why. Why are they being deceptive? What's happening uh, in their heads that's making them be deceptive? And there's a couple of reasons. Uh, people can be deceptive because they're guilty. They can be deceptive because they're guilty. They don't want you to know that. They don't want to be held to account. Uh, they want to get the job even though they don't deserve the job, whatever it is. Uh, so they can be guilty uh, that deception can show that. Deception can also be things they don't want you to know about that you haven't even asked about. Right? You might be asking about um, you know, their skill sets for a job or their ability to do different kinds of work. And they are really concerned about a problem that they had at their last business uh, in the lunchroom. And that's never really going to come up in this interview, but they're worried that it might. So they might be deceptive anytime you get around that area of interaction with other employees or something like that. Um, I always give an example of when I'm teaching this class, if you were to uh, get called as a police officer to a business where 40 people work in this office and the boss has an office there with a safe in it, has cash in it, and there's really only five people allowed in that office during the day when the boss is not there to conduct work, right? And then the boss finds one day, uh-oh, there's $5,000 missing out of the safe. Well, you're going to interview all those people, right? So you're going to get all those people. That's a lot of people, 40 people to interview. So you would start out with who are the five people that are allowed in the office? Because you would assume that if only five people are allowed in there, the rest of the employees, if they went wandering in there, somebody would notice that. And they would think that was weird and tell the boss, hey, Mary was in there. Frank was in there. They're not supposed to be in the office, right? So you'd start with the people who have permission to be in there. Now you start to talk to them and you start to ask questions and you find that the, the first person, you know, Tina comes in and she answers good answers. She has good body language. She declines that she saw. I didn't take the money. All right. Okay. And you, you get her out of the room and then Bob comes in and then Bob is not making eye contact. Bob is looking down. Bob is stuttering a little bit. Um, and you, you say, uh-oh, this guy seems deceptive. When every time you ask questions about being in the office, he seems to dodge the question. And, well, yeah, I, I go in there, but I don't go in there a lot. And I only stay for a minute. And you say, hmm, that's kind of strange. He must be the guy that stole the money. Well, the reality is, as you work your way through this, this case, you find that, you know, Bob was being deceptive, not because he took the money, but because Bob is married and so is the manager and Bob is having an affair with the manager. And Bob does not want anybody to know that because there's a lot of consequences for him. So therefore he wanted nothing to do with talking about being in that office, made him uncomfortable. He did not take the money, but he was deceptive because he didn't want to talk about being in the office. He had some other uh, jeopardy to being in there, right? So that's really the bottom line. So we look for truth and we look for deception. When you see deception, you keep asking questions. Very simple. You just keep asking questions when someone's being deceptive. Um, so in, in the case of uh, people we see on TV, what are some other things we can look at? Well, we can look at body language and how they use words. How they use words. Body language, we react to stress. So I use the word jeopardy. Now, this is a key for you here. When someone has jeopardy, when you have jeopardy, 
right? When you have jeopardy, uh, you are going to feel this different physically. You are, you are going to think differently. Your body is going to react differently. Um, your heartbeat might go up. You might have some other kind of problem. Um, something else will be reflected in your behaviors uh, of how you're behaving because you have some jeopardy. You can have a consequence, right? So I, I often talk to people about uh, you get called into the boss's office because of that missing money. And you didn't take the money, but you've been taking, you know, office supplies and you took a couple and you stopped and looked at the boss's photos of his girlfriend or whatever, whatever you did. And that would make you uncomfortable. Um, so, so we were trying to figure out if the boss asked you about that, your body language would change because you'd have jeopardy. Right? So that's the concept you want to get. Jeopardy will do that to you. So to figure out if you're being deceptive or truthful, first, I have to know how you behave and how you answer questions when you have no jeopardy. Right? So I call this setting a baseline. Let's set a baseline for what normal looks like when I interview somebody. What does it look like when they have nothing to, to lose? There's no consequences. There's no jeopardy. They're just talking. So a lot of times you, you will start out by something obvious. So if somebody comes in and they're wearing a, uh, a Mets jersey, right, the New York Mets, you might say, oh, hey, you like the New York Mets? Oh, yeah, I like the Mets now. You see, you engage in that conversation and you will see them look you in the eye. They laugh. They joke. They answer questions on time. You go back and forth. You're talking about the Mets. They have great recall of all the great Mets hitters and history of, you know, World Series and all this and other thing. And you say, oh, okay. You know, that's you get a good feeling for how they how they are when they when they don't lie, when they have nothing to, to lie about. Maybe you talk about their family. You talk about their hobbies. You talk about the things that are inconsequential to the, to the uh, basis of the interview, right? So if it's crime, you're talking about all this other stuff. You see how they answer when they have no jeopardy. Then you're going to transition into the questions about the crime or the subject matter or the bad application they put in for their job or whatever. And when you do this, you will often see a very different person now emerge, someone who's being deceptive, someone has something to, to hide. It's natural for people to be nervous. Being nervous is, is perfectly normal. Um, when people are nervous, they, you know, they usually can get over it, though. You know, if you put them at ease, hey, listen, I know you're nervous. I know you're, you're, you're anticipating getting the job. You need the job. Uh, hey, listen, I know you're nervous here in the police station. You know, but, uh, you know, I just I'm just trying to get your side of the story here. Nothing to be nervous about. You want a cup of coffee? You do everything you can to relax them. And you will see the person who has nothing to hide will often calm down. They will calm down. Their breathing goes back to normal. They, they're just as normal as could be because now they're now you've put them at ease. They're not afraid of, of consequences because they have no consequences. But when you transition over to the crime questions, now they have to protect themselves. So the concept here is run, hide or fight. Well, we do that physically, uh, or we can do that mentally, right? So if Ron Hyde, you know, fight, uh, fight or flight goes back to the early parts of humanity. The lion jumps on the, on the trail. Either you're going to fight the lion for your life, or you're going to run for your life. Well, there's also the third part of that. There's freeze. There's fight, flight, or freeze. And if we've never thought about what to, what to do in a dangerous situation, we might freeze. Right? That's why we train our kids to do fire drills. So when it's dangerous, they know what to do. Right? It's rote memory. They go and do it. Or an active shooter stuff. We practice active shooter stuff for the same reason. When there's that danger, we don't freeze. Right? We, we take action of some kind. Well, that's the same thing that happens in an interview. There's psychological fight, flight, or freeze. 
So when I start to ask questions and I start to poke at their jeopardy, as I like to call it, it makes them uncomfortable. And now you'll see body language will be expressed. And that body language will help me gauge whether or not they're being truthful or not. So what would you look for? What would you look for in body language? Well, there are truth, truthful kind of gestures and things that we do. And then there are things that are considered deceptive. So one of the things that we look at it and, and you say, this is a truthful person, someone who's being upfront, is that they usually be very interested in what you have to say. They're gonna be sitting with an open posture, right? Their hands are gonna be open, not closed arms, not closed legs. They're sitting, they might be leaning forward at the desk or the table, wherever you're sitting, uh, and they'll be looking at you, making good eye contact. You know, what were you told when you were young? If somebody don't look you in the eye, what's that mean? It means they're lying, right? Of course, and there is something to that. When people are being deceptive and they're trying to hide something from somebody, when you look that person in the eye, you don't think about it, but it kind of feels like they can tell you're lying, so you'll see people averting their eyes away. This is why, before you ask these kind of questions, you want to see that baseline. When you're asking questions about the Mets and the hitters and the catchers, they looked you right in the eye. They smiled. They answered questions on time. Now you're asking questions about the missing money or the crime or whatever it is you're asking about, and now they're averting their eyes. They're not looking at you. They keep moving away. All right, so truthful things, they'll be open, they'll look at you, they'll smile. Timing for a question. People will listen to the full question, then they will formulate an answer. Now, it's, it's not uh, improper for them to think for a minute. You know, you ask a question, hmm, and the more serious the question, the more they should consider what their answer should be. If, if you're in a job kind of a situation where someone's going to get a job, they're going to want to be very careful how they answer. So that'd be normal for them to think. So if you say, so tell me about the best project you ever worked on with a team. Hmm. Now, if they had that kind of job, they probably worked in lots of projects with lots of teams. Now they got to pick one that worked really well. So it takes a few seconds, right? And that's perfectly okay. What we see deceptive is that people will cross their arms and legs. They will not look you in the eye or they look away. They keep averting when you ask a question. They answer too quickly. Right, so what does that mean? So if I was to say, so listen, uh, you told me that you walk to work every day past the gas station, that was right. And then they jump in. Oh, no, well, you know, I didn't walk that way today. Today I took the bus. Well, hang on. You didn't hear my whole question. The purpose, the reason that people do that is that they, they're not thinking that that's a tactic. What they're trying to do is lead you, the investigator, the interviewer, away from what they don't want to talk about. So they, they, they blurt it out. I, I, but I didn't take the bus today. I, I took the bus today. I, I didn't walk today, right? Because they want you to get away from them walking past that 7-Eleven. That got robbed and a guy got shot. So you start to see inappropriate timing, right? So sometimes people can think about it and then they give an answer. Um, another thing we see is false flags, right? People will, will like to um, pull things out of a hat to make you think well of them. So if you say, listen, uh, you know, Mary Ellen, uh, you have a right to be in that office and I know you were in there and the manager wasn't there today and it turns out that the money is missing. So did you take the money? Now you might hear something like this. I go to church every Sunday. Why would you even ask me that question? So two things happened there in that exchange. Number one, she didn't answer the question, did she? No. She threw a false flag at. She said, I go to church every Sunday. Why would you even ask me that question? She's trying to tell you 
don't look at me, I'm a churchgoer. So she's using the going to church as a false flag to keep you away from her, to put to put her, uh, her guilt away. No, she can't be. She goes to church, so of course she wouldn't do that. So people do those kind of things all the time. So we can we can poke at their at their jeopardy to elicit body language from them that we can then interpret truthfulness or deceptiveness. When we see people on TV, when we see politicians or township uh, clerks or whoever, anybody that's got got something to tell, when we watch them. You also want to watch for, do they actually answer the question? Now, we know politicians don't. In general, they don't. They have their line that they're going to talk about, and no matter what question they get, they're going to stick to that message. Um, and that's, that's kind of common to politicians. Now, we do see different kind of people that, as politicians, they say things, and you go, oh, that guy must have been pretty truthful because he actually answered the question. And there's a reason we say that. It's because people are usually deceiving us, and when they actually come out and answer a question, it rings a bell. It, it makes itself obvious. Right? So when you're watching people on the news, listen. Are they answering questions or are they obfuscating? Are they throwing false flags? Are they being deceptive? Are they jumping in too quick? Just like in a criminal interview. It's really all the same because we're all people. And this is how we react when we have jeopardy and we're being asked questions. So as you watch uh, any crime type of thing, Pay attention to these things because this is how you're going to be able to discern truth from deception. All right, everybody. We talked a lot today about crime and punishment here. And I just want to uh, thank everybody for being out there and let you know we'll be back sooner than you can imagine. But until then, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. This is Lieutenant Joe saying, see you down the road.